following podcast is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of True Crime on Easy Street. My name's Katie Givens, and I'm not a lawyer. My name is Scott Wright. I am a mediocre journalist. I'm Kelly Turner, and I'm not a doctor. Here we are again. Here we are back this week. We're getting into part two of three. Scott's taking us down the crazy train. Do I have to? Yep. Because I remember saying towards the end of last week's episode, which I listened to twice last night to make sure that there was some continuity between episode one and episode two of this Charles Manson slash Tate LaBianca thing. Mm -hmm. And I said at one point late in the show last week that I'm about to get to the bad part. Yes. And I laid out the outline of what the bad part was Mm -hmm. because remember Mrs. Chapman, the, the, the housekeeper showed up Saturday morning at 8.30 on September, I'm sorry, August the 9th, 1969, Mm -hmm. and saw enough death, bodies, blood, and I'm going to forget it now, but she saw enough that she ran screaming from the house. Mm -hmm. Yes, to the neighbors. To the neighbors, and called the police, and the police came, and they found... Yeah, she had to run to the neighbors because the phone lines had been cut. The phone lines had been cut. We talked about that. Yeah. And we talked about what you had, you talked about what she did not see. Exactly. Which is what you're getting into today. So I just, just to tell yeah. everybody this, if you have not listened to part one, you need to stop and listen to part one and then pick back up. We'll, yep. we'll be here when you get back. And if you're having lunch right now, pause it okay. for 15 minutes and so have your lunch climber. first. Eat your burrito. Mm-hmm. Bad example. But then come back to us after you finish lunch because should we just delete that? No, no, no. Okay. I was just, I was just gonna say we didn't play the disclaimer, but maybe we should. Uh, uh, the disclaimer. In yeah, the she oh, already. Yeah, she's already packed this trunk before we left. Yeah, so, the yeah. station. I'm so just. Riding. I asked her about that because I knew this was. It's going to be bad today. Yeah, I'm just riding in the back seat. That's okay. <laughs> yeah, in the rumble seat if yeah, it's a if it's an old Ford uh, A model. Mm-hmm. Um. Well, you threw it way back there. Yeah, sorry. I've ridden in the rumble seat of an old A-model Ford. My grandfather used to have one. That's awesome. I've been in one of those. Did you feel like you should have a helmet? I felt like I should not be in it (laughs) because it was very unsafe, and he was going too fast. But that's another story for another time. So what we're doing today, guys, is I'm going to walk you through the crime scene at 10050 CLO Drive. And Katie and I discussed this while you were uh, taking care of some paperwork earlier before you got into the room. I. Now everybody's going to think I was in the restroom. Like, no, that's not what I meant. You had to, you had to sign some documents. We're at a law office. Everybody's going to think <laughs> Kelly was in the crapper <laughs> while we were talking. I literally just had to pee. Oh, I thought you had some documents to sign. No. You walked in and said, hey, I got to do some paperwork. I'll be back in a minute. I said, I'm going to the restroom. Oh, yeah, you did say that. And then I came back promptly, well, very quickly. Between what you said and what I heard, two different things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, now the whole Usually world. Usually is, Scott. Sorry. Anyways, whatever. So, 
What was I talking about? I don't know. The pronunciation of... Oh, yes. CLO Drive. And I, I made fun of crappy... Manson Murder podcast yeah, you did. last week. Yeah, you did. About people who don't do their research and then proceeded to shove my foot all the way down my yeah, mouth up mis- to the knee by saying CLO drive wrong five times. You That's did. why I listened said, to it twice last night to count how many times I said it wrong. You said Celio. Celio. It's CLO drive. Thank you. I know that. Right. But I just had a brain. Uh, something I'm sorry. is not. No, no, right, keep so, going. So again, Run with to, it. to go to do a callback from last week. Uh-huh. What is the the part of the ladder that is below mediocre? Eh. I don't know. Meh. No, I, I thought that was better that than was better. Meh yeah. is one up. What so is one? Maybe below? now you're How about fail. Meh. How about failure? <laughs> How about I'm a fa- <laughs> a, a raspberry <laughs> works for me. But failed journalist also right, so fits it's, the bill. It's Ciela Drive. We got it. Yes. Scott. All right. So, so what happened? So, the the story that I'm going to tell you tonight is a story that one of the murderers, one of the killers who was at Cielo Drive, told Vincent Bugliosi on December the fifth, nineteen sixty nine, in grand jury testimony. Okay. The murders happened on August the ninth and tenth. For four months, the Los Angeles Police Department and the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department had no idea what the hell was going on. Mm. Nobody in Los Angeles knew what was going on. Everybody was scared to death, uh, especially if you were in the entertainment community. Yeah, because it seemed to be, there seemed to be no motivation. None. And there was no connection between these two crimes. In fact, Three days after the murders took place, and leave it to Hollywood to do this, they had Sharon Tate's last big film, Valley of the Dolls, from 1967, back in a nationwide release. That was on August 12th. She's dead. Along and with, And they're going to profit. And they're that. going to make some money off of it. So they re-release Valley of the Dolls nationwide. It's playing in over a dozen theaters in Los Angeles. That's really tasteless. It's very tasteless. On the same day, on August the 12th, the LAPD came out and said, there is absolutely no way that these two crimes are connected to each other. Which two? The Tate murders on August the 9th. Yeah. And the LaBianca murders on August the 10th. Okay, the LaBianca murders. This is the first we're hearing about these. Yeah, what are those? Uh, sorry. But th- these two murders happened over the same weekend in 1969 in August. Typically in Los Angeles at the time, there were there was one murder per day in Los Angeles. Okay. Over the course of this weekend, twenty eight people were murdered. Okay. Including the seven that we are focusing on. All right. So. So the city was in a panic. Yeah. I especially because Sharon Tate had been murdered, along with her friends. So the Hollywood community is thinking somebody is out to get us. Yeah. This whole drug and summer of love thing is not as much fun anymore as it has been for the last two or three years. We want to go buy guns. We want to call the security system or the security businesses that drive through our areas and make sure that nobody's climbing over our fences. Guard dog sales went through the roof. It was a crazy time for several months in Los Angeles at the time. Okay. 
it was December before the people who are in charge of trying to figure out what the hell happened at both of those crime scenes when they finally have some facts about what happened. So are you going to walk us through the, the LaBianca murders today? Or yes. Are we we're going to do, we're going to okay. do the Tate crime scene today and we're going to do the LaBianca crime scene today. And then we're going to leave you with another cliffhanger trying to explain why this crazy shit happened. And that's what we will mop up in part three of this three-part series. We'll tell you about the Manson family and what their motivation was to commit these crimes. And then Katie's going to uh, tell us about the trial itself, which was nuts. Okay. In dozens of ways. All right. So All right. what's next? So this story comes from one of the people who was at the Tate murder scene. Okay. Her name is Susan Atkins. Okay. On December the 5th, she is called before a grand jury in Los Angeles. Finally, Vincent Bugliosi, who wrote Helter Skelter, Feels like he has some grasp of the facts of what happened that night in that house. Okay. And so the definitive version of what happened is Susan Atkins' version of what happened. All right. And that comes out in grand jury testimony on December the 5th, 1969, four months after the murders take place. She has bragged to someone a month previously while she's incarcerated for another crime, she's been arrested, she's in jail. She is bragging to one of her cellmates about being at both the Tate and LaBianca crime scenes. And for whatever reason, Susan Atkins decides that she is going to waive her constitutional rights. She's going to walk into the grand jury on December the 5th, 1969, and tell the whole damn story. On August the 9th, 1969, Four people climb into a car. Actually, it's it, it's in the late evening hours of August the 8th, which is a Friday. And we talked last week about how the last time Sharon Tate talked to her husband, Roman Polanski, who was still in London working mm-hmm. on a film. Mm-hmm. He was in London. They talked on the phone. She's at the house with her friend Jay Sebring and Abigail Folger mm-hmm. and Wojtek Krakowski. Yep. They're hanging out at the house at... CLO Drive. And we learned that Jay Sebring was born in Alabama. That's our Alabama connection to this yep. whole thing. Mm-hmm. But they're all hanging out at the house. And that's about the time, sometime late that evening, when Charles Manson tells four people that are his followers. Okay. And they're staying at an old movie ranch about 25 miles north of downtown Los Angeles. It's called Spawn's Movie Ranch. Okay. S-P-A-H-N. It was used in the 40s and 50s. If you've ever watched the old uh, Lone Ranger, mm-hmm. you probably saw Jay Silverheels and Clayton Moore galloping on their horses down the streets of the Spawn movie ranch. Okay. But fast forward to 1969, and it's a rundown old movie ranch. They don't make movies that way anymore in Hollywood, so it's just the guy who owns the place is trying to make as much money as he can by having people come in, and it's a tourist attraction, ride the horses, look around. And the reason that Charles Manson and his followers are staying there is because they have made a deal with the guy, the old guy who owns the ranch. If you'll do some chores, hang out, keep an eye on the place, I'll let you live here. Oh, okay. So So there's about 30 adults and about seven kids living at Spawn's Movie Ranch in the summer of 69. 
Charles Manson gathers together four of his most favored, depending on who you ask, followers, mm-hmm. and says, grab some dark clothes, borrow our friend's car. I want you to go to CLO Drive and kill everybody in the house. Does he say exactly Or does he say... That's what Susan Atkins says that he says. She does. Because I've also heard that he says, go creepy crawling. Creepy crawling was something that they did before they got up the nerve to actually commit murder. Creepy crawling was something that they did for months before August of 69. They would go to a middle-class home, Mm -hmm. sneak into an open door or open a window, and they would go in and they would move things around. They didn't hurt anybody. They didn't commit any crimes other than breaking and entering. Mm -hmm. But they would move things around, and they thought it was hilarious. It was just something that they did. And later people would say that this was something that Charles Manson did to his followers to work them up towards what they ultimately did on the weekend of August 9th and 10th. That's terrifying, by the way. Yes. Okay. Anyways, go ahead. So he says, hey, get some dark clothing. Everybody grab a knife. Get in the car. And Tex Watson, Charles doesn't, Charlie doesn't get in the car that night. He stays at Spawn Ranch. Okay. He sends Tex Watson, Susan Atkins, Patricia Prenwinkle, and Linda Kasabian and says, go to CLO Drive. All right, go there. Kill everybody there. Kill everybody in the house. Okay. They drive to the house. It's about 25 minutes away, like I said. They park the car. Tex climbs over the fence. He first, the first thing he does is climb a telephone pole. We mentioned this last week. He cuts the phone lines. We talked about the phone lines being cut. Mm-hmm. He cuts the phone lines. They climb over the fence. They go up to the house. And as they're approaching the house, there's headlights coming down the driveway. And that's the 18-year-old Stephen Parent that we talked about last week, the unluckiest person in yes. 1969. He was trying to get someone to buy a radio. He came and stopped by and visited with his uh, friend who was staying in the guest house because mm-hmm. the owner of the property is in Italy. Yes. But he hired somebody to stay in the guest house and take care of his dogs. Yep. So Stephen Perrin is there. About 12.15, 12.30, he is headed back down the driveway to leave the property. Okay. So he doesn't sell the radio? He does no. not. No. No, he's got the radio with him. In fact, there's a whole thing online. If you want to see the exact model of that radio, there's you can probably buy one for 20 grand or however many there are that are left. I don't know. But anyway, so Tex Watson tells the three girls who are with him, you guys hide in the bushes. He jumps out in front of the car and says, halt. Halt. Literally halt. halt. Yes. According to Susan Atkins, he says halt. She says she doesn't see this happen because she is hiding in the bushes, but she hears somebody say, please don't hurt me. I won't tell anyone. And then she hears four gunshot wounds, and that's where Stephen Perrin ends up in the car. He's 18 years old. He just graduated from high school. He's working two jobs to try to make money to go to college. That's just heartbreaking. Yeah. So they go up to the house. It's about 60 yards up the hill to the house proper and Tex Watson tells Linda Kasabian go around to the back of the house and see if you can find any open windows or open doors 
Linda Kasabian says later that she lied when she came back to Tex and said, no, there's no way, there's no way to get in back here. So, so she kind of doesn't want to be there. Maybe She was the newest member of the man. She was one of the newer members of the Manson family. This was something she just wanted to hang out with people her own age who shared and shared alike. And you know, the summer of love and drugs. And the next thing she knows, she's in a car headed up to Cielo drive. And now we're going to kill people. So she went around to the back of the house and comes back and says, there's nothing, there's no way to get in. No way in. Okay. So Tex tells Linda, you go back down to the garage, uh, to the gate and you be the lookout. Watch out for us. Yes. So Tex cuts the screen on the dining room window, raises the window, walks back into the entryway, opens the front door. We talked about the big Dutch front door that's mm-hmm. the two-part front door we talked about that last week he opens the door and he lets susan and patricia into the house linda stays outside yep Wojtek Frakowski is asleep on the couch it's about 12 30 on saturday morning Wojtek has taken some drugs because he is a drug dealer he's the one who makes sharon tate feel uncomfortable because He's just a little bit too into the drug scene for her because she's eight and a half months pregnant. She's just focusing on her baby. Right. Wojtek is asleep on the couch. Tex walks over to the couch, wakes him up. Wojtek stretches his arms and says, what time is it? Who are you and what are you doing here? To which Tex Watson replies, I am the devil and I'm here to do the devil's business. Hmm. That's creepy. Yeah. Yeah. I, my arm hair is standing up right now. So he. It literally is. It literally is. Look, check <laughs> yeah, it out. I can see it. So Tex Watson tells uh, Susan Atkins, tie this guy up. Tex Watson has brought rope. He's brought 43 feet of rope with him. What? Tie him up. So she does that. And then he says, you go into the rest of the house and see who else is here. She walks down the hallway and she sees Abigail Folger sitting on the bed in the guest bedroom reading a book. They wave at each other and smile. Because it's not that <laughs> odd to have strangers show up at CLO Drive okay, so in Abigail, 1969. Abigail's thinking, oh, new friend. Oh, new, guys. new friend. And she just waved it. Who who did she wave at? Susan Atkins. Susan Atkins. Okay. Susan continues down the hallway to the master bedroom, and she sees Sharon Tate leaned up against the headboard of the bed with a pillow behind her, and Jay Sebring, our Alabama connection, he is sitting at the edge of the bed. They're having a conversation. Neither one of them sees Susan Atkins. Okay. She goes back into the living room, and she tells Tex, there are three other people here. Three. So, Tex Watson says, find something else to tie this guy up with because I need the rope. Because there's three other people now. So, now he needs the rope. So, she grabs a towel from somewhere, ties Wojtek Frakowski by his hands on the couch. She goes back into the bedroom area, down the hallway. She gets Abigail Folger and Sharon Tate and Jay Sebring to come back into the living room at knife point. She corralled three people with a knife. Yes. Well, Susan Atkins said, 
I think Ugliosi asked her, did they not do anything? And she said, no, they were all just in shock. They just... It's 12.30 in the morning and somebody's walked into my bedroom with a knife. You do what they say. Maybe. Hmm. Nobody, nobody hit the panic button yet. But we're getting there. Okay. We're about to get to the panic button. So they get everybody into the living room. And so we've got Tex and Susan and Patricia in the house with four, the four people who were in the house to begin with. All right. And Tex tells everybody to lay down in the floor on their stomachs. To which Jay Sebring says, can't you see she's nine months pregnant? She can't lay on the floor on her stomach. Let her sit on the couch. Tex spins around and shoots J.C. Bring with the twenty-two revolver that he shot oh. Stephen Parent with, and then the panic that, button gets yeah, hit. Yeah, sure. Everybody is screaming for their lives at that point. Oh my gosh! So for the next several minutes, it's a mad panic in the living room at Cielo Drive. Jay hits the floor. Sharon and Abigail scream. Right. Yes. Um, Scott screams if he's there. Yes. Yes. Tex Watson tells Susan Atkins to kill Wojtek Frakowski. He's tied up on the couch with a towel around his arms. Well, Wojtek hears that, and he's just like Roman Polanski. He survived the Nazi invasion of Poland. He's not going down without a fight. Of all of the people who died in that house that night, mm-hmm. Wojtek Frakowski fought the hardest for his life. He ends up with two gunshot wounds, 13 blows to the head by a blunt object, and 51 stab wounds. Holy cow. He died fighting for his life. Yeah, he did. And so he begins this whole panic. Mm -hmm. He takes Susan Atkins by the hair and jerks her down as hard as she's ever been jerked in her life, she says later. Good. He's fighting to get out the door. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Nobody knows when Frakowski got shot, but we know that he's been shot twice. And the reason that's pertinent is because one thing that Tex Watson does as Frakowski is fighting his way towards the front door, he beats him over the head 13 times with the butt of the revolver to the point that the, the barrel is bent and the handle comes apart and scatters across the floor. So Frakowski gets to the door. Somehow in the confusion, Abigail Folger makes a break for it. She runs down the hallway towards the master bedroom, which has French doors, which lead out into the side yard by the swimming pool. Okay. I'm going to get some of this wrong, but I'm trying to keep us in the right uh, timeline here. Frakowski gets away. In the meantime, Frakowski gets towards the front door, the big Dutch door that we talked about. He gets outside, falls into the shrubbery, and at that point, he's bleeding profusely because there's a lot of blood around the front porch area and the shrubbery area that ends up belonging to Frakowski. Well, he has been injured multiple times. Yes. And, we'll, and he has not been stabbed yet. Oh. The stab wounds come in a minute. Oh. Okay. So he's fighting for his life. He gets out of the front door. He falls through the shrubs. He's crawling across the yard. Tex Watson runs over to him. We still don't know exactly when he got shot, but at this point, Frakowski's been shot twice. He's still fighting for his life. Mm -hmm. Tex Watson gets on top of him and stabs him 
Susan Atkins says, until he was stabbing the ground. He was angry at this point. He was like... He stabbed entirely through Frakowski's body. Yeah. And is just stabbing the ground. He's just, he's, he's mad. This is really. Well, he's, he's in a rage. Mm-hmm. He's, uh, he's fighting for his guy, life too. They're guy, all fighting for their lives well, this at this point. This guy won't die. He, he hadn't yet. He's, he's beat him over the head. Yeah. He shot him. Yeah. Now he's just going to stab him until. This guy survived the Nazi invasion of Poland. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So this guy's going to have to kill me right here in this yard yeah. as hard as he can. And that's ultimately what he does. And just yeah. about the time that that ends, Abigail Folger comes running out that side door. Towards the pool. With Patricia Krenwinkel in hot pursuit. Okay. With a knife over her head. Ugh. Tex goes over and helps out with that situation. Abigail ends up dying from 28 stab wounds. It's just... Yeah. Ugh. They've never met these people. Have they? Never. They have never met. It these doesn't people. matter, and that's what we'll get into next week with the whole helter skelter and the establishment and pigs. They don't care who it is that they kill. They just need to kill to send successful a entertainment people to send a message. Okay. All right. At some point in all of that confusion inside the house, Jay Sebring, in addition to having been shot first. Mm-hmm was stabbed an additional seven times. So he's laying dead in the floor. And they're stabbing him. Well, they stabbed him before this thing outside happened, mm-hmm. we think. Mm. So now, the only live person who's left at CLO Drive is Sharon Tate. So Susan Atkins is with her in, in the house the entire time while uh, Patricia Krenwinkel is following Abigail out the back door and uh, uh, Watson is following... Brakowski out the front door. Susan Atkins is holding Sharon Tate around the neck. They've, she's got a rope around her neck. It's thrown over one of those exposed beams. Remember I told you guys last week there was a half loft in the living room? Yes. So the rope is over that beam, and she's being held in place, in a sense, with the tautness of that rope. Okay. But finally, it's just Sharon. All of her friends are dead. Mm-hmm. All three killers come back into the living room. At this point, Sharon has stopped screaming for her own life. She is screaming for the life of her unborn child. Yeah. Please just take me prisoner and let my baby be born, and then you can kill me. Susan yes. Atkins says that Sharon Tate begs mm-hmm. in the last moments of her life. It doesn't work out that way. Sharon dies from 16 stab wounds, mostly to her chest and some to her back, which makes me think that... There was probably two people stabbing Two people her. stabbing her at the same time. Yeah. Uh, and she falls dead, still with the rope around her neck, over the I-beam, and the other end of that rope is wrapped around Jay Sebring's neck, which is where his uh, gold chain is that has her class ring on it. Because mm. remember last week I told you, Mm-hmm. He died with her class ring on. He was still in love with her. Yes. And so at that point, we've got five dead bodies at CLO Drive. Mm-hmm. And the four killers walk out of the house. And then Tex Watson turns around to Sharon, I'm sorry, to uh, Susan Atkins and says, Hey, write something on the door. 
This is a, this is a pattern that the Manson family has already established. They've already killed other people and written things on the wall in blood. In fact, the reason that Susan Atkins is in jail in November to tell her story to a to a fellow inmate is because she's been implicated in another murder that took place before this happened. So Susan Atkins goes back and grabs a towel, the same towel perhaps that she had tried to tie up Frakowski with earlier in the evening. She dips it in Sharon Tate's blood and writes P-I-G on the lower half of that white door Mm -hmm. that Winifred Chapman cleaned with vinegar and water the day before because Sharon Tate's little Yorkie had left paw prints on it. So she cleaned that door. And so we know that any prints that got left on that door were fresh, including, it turns out, thank goodness, a thumbprint that Tex Watson left. Good. Yeah. Oh, and uh, Winifred Chapman had cleaned the French doors out of the bedroom into the pool area on Tuesday of that week. Patricia Krenwinkel left a bloody fingerprint there as she was chasing Abigail Fulcher out the door. Okay, good. So this is important later. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Evidence. It's evidence. Sharon Tate died alone. And I told you guys last week, I've, she died seven months before I was born, and I'm totally in love with Sharon Tate. I will be forever. <laughs> and it just the most horrible thing that I can imagine is having that, terrified. the rope around your neck, over the eye beam, you... Nobody's screaming anymore because they were all screaming for their lives. And they're all focused on her and and she's terrified and she's begging and she's pleading. And she died. Yeah. And they didn't care. And they didn't care. Cold blooded. Uh, Susan Atkins said, and she admitted this to Vincent Bugliosi, right before she started to stab Sharon Tate, she said, I don't have any sympathy for you, bitch. You're going to die tonight. Yikes. Someone she's never met. Yeah. It's someone that she was conditioned to hate by a madman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So the next night, everybody that's, they all climb in the car. They throw out their weapons and their bloody clothes. Everybody's brought a change of clothes, right? Mm-hmm. So it, it's months later, a local news station, actually, and we're not going to get into this too much, but a local news station, here's enough of the story to try and, grab a roadmap and figure out where they might have tossed out the weapons mm-hmm. and the bloody clothing. Channel 2 finds the bloody clothing. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Wow. The not cops, the police. I'm not going to try to roll the LAPD entirely down the hill on this one, but how many times have we had stories that we've already done on this podcast where the LAPD just fucks it up nine ways from Sunday? OJ Simpson comes to mind. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And another problem is you've got multiple jurisdictions. We talked about that with the Kemper case, right? Mm -hmm. It was almost like he purposely scattered Mm -hmm. evidence across multiple jurisdictions to keep everybody. Because, you know, before the age of computers, it was a lot harder for people to work together. And there was the whole system of, you're not going to solve my case. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. That whole male macho thing. I guess, right? For lack of a better way to say it. I think it was, and it was a very, just territorial. Territorial, yeah, that's the word I was looking for. Yeah, Yeah. territorial, for sure. So it was other people who found some of this evidence, which is why it is November before word gets to Bugliosi that, hey, there's a woman sitting in the jail telling everybody she had something to do with this. She's bragging about it. Yeah. She's telling everyone. Yeah. She told at least two of her fellow inmates 
And they were both scared to death to tell anybody about it. But finally, one of them said, look, this is just horseshit. I'm not going to sit around and. I'm terrified of this woman. I want to get moved. Yeah. I want to get some better And in the meantime, she talked to her lawyer and passed this along and eventually gets to Bugliosi. That's how we get to the grand jury testimony in December. And that's when the case really starts to crack wide open. And that's this. Everything you just told us is what she told. This is Susan Atkins. That day. In one day, mm-hmm. in front of a grand jury. Oh, and there was, I should tell this before I move on to the LaBianca murders. At one point, Bugliosi, the DA, shows Susan Atkins a photograph of Stephen Parent slumped over dead in that car that was his father's parked in the middle of the driveway at CLO Drive. Mm-hmm. Did I say it right? CLO Drive. I did say it right. <laughs> and she said, to gasps from the 21 grand jurors in that room that day. That is the thing I saw in the car. That is the thing I saw in the car. Bugliosi said, do you mean a human being? And she said, yeah, that's it. That's what she said, according to Helter Skelter. Yikes. So the next night, they, they go back to the Spawn Ranch, and they watch the news the next day. They can't wait to watch the morning news. Because they know this story is going to break. It's going to be the big thing. And they think it's going to bring about Helter Skelter, which we'll get into a little bit more. But basically, it's a race war that's going to change the dynamic of the world, at least the country. And eventually, it's going to put Charles Manson on the throne and be in charge of everything. That's the the story he has espoused to them for months. Mm -hmm. And that they believe when they go out to commit these murders at Cielo Drive on August the 9th. You may get into this, but I'm not incorrect and this these are white people killing white people right yes but they think that for some magical reason the black community is going to automatically be blamed for doing it because that's what charlie is telling everybody helter skelter in his mind is the race war that's coming and it wasn't so hard to believe in the late 60s that that might be a possibility. I, I was about to say I mean that. I mean it was a different time yeah. and and the LAPD was infamous for things like that. Yeah. You know, I mean, there was a lot of racial discord in the country as a whole. I mean, you know, uh, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. had been assassinated in April of 68. Mm -hmm. And so he's like, we're going to commit these crimes and the police are going to blame it on black people. Yes. Basically. Yes. And then this is going to start this whole chain of reaction that's going to make me rule the world. You know, that's it. We talked about that. That's, I mean, yeah, 10 second version. That's it. Yeah. That's exactly it. So, and we may get into this and, and I may be jumping ahead, but go ahead. The things that you're telling me about Susan uh-huh. and how she's just sitting in there, she waves everything, she tells this whole story. She's telling anybody that will listen in prison, is she not textbook for an insanity plea? Because it seems to me that she does not understand that what she has done is wrong because she's just telling everybody. Um, Vincent Bugliosi said that when she finally climbed down off the witness stand that day, I'm glad you brought that up because I just happened to write this down a couple of hours ago. And this is a quote from Bugliosi's Helter Skelter. Jurors stared at her in total disbelief. Not once had she shown an ounce of remorse, sorrow, or guilt, unquote. It's almost like she's just talking she's about. She's proud of what she did. Every day. Because she's doing, she did this for Charlie. Yeah. So that's, that's where it is. But. Susan is the one that you see a picture of, and it's in the eyes, and you go, mm-hmm. 
something's not right with Susan. Yeah. We'll we'll put a picture of her on our Abs- yeah. Just take a look at that and see if, and there, if you th- see that. There's a good shot of the three of them. Like, they're all in their prison clothes walking down the hallway, I guess at the Hall of Justice in L.A., headed to a court proceeding. But they all just have that thousand-yard stare. Mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, they've been totally indoctrinated and totally they believe, yeah, they believe what they're doing was right. And again, no remorse, no sorrow, no guilt. Charlie happy. Yeah, they, that's it. They, that they wanted the to point. do whatever it was that made Charlie happy. Wow. Fantastic segue into the next night's events because what happens after they watch the news and they're all cheering and laughing and hey, we've, we've started Helter Skelter, right? We've, We've reached out to the pigs, which to them is the establishment. And mm-hmm. anybody successful in, in mainstream society, that's who they want to bring down. Okay. So the next night, Susan Atkins says that Charlie walks up to her, and without saying a word, she knows he wants me to do it again. So they climb in the car again. The same four from the previous night, plus Charles Manson himself. Okay. Tonight, and a girl named Leslie Van Houten, and a guy named Clem, Steve Grogan. But we're going to call him Clem for the purposes of tonight's I was discussion. Clem have a last name. Steve Grogan. Okay, but they called him Clem. I, I every one of these people has a nickname. Yeah, in the family. But I'm sticking to Tex Watson and Clem Grogan, and the girls were going to use their names because. There were two or three well, for they, each, and it just the, gets confusing. The nicknames were given to them by Charlie, and right. they don't give a crap about it. Didn't what necessarily he have anything to do with anything. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So. Charlie, you don't get your nicknames on yeah. this one. Sorry, Sorry. Charlie. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, wow. Yeah. So the All next right. night, Charlie has heard the story about what happened at CLO Drive. Yeah. And it was obviously, it was a panic. It was people running and screaming and they could have been heard and you know, the neighbors could have called the cops. So Charlie says, everybody get in the car. I'm going to show you how to do this the right way. So they drive around town for a couple of hours. Linda Kasabian, who was one of the girls who was there the night before ends up being the one who spills the beans because Susan Atkins ultimately decides that she's going to recant her grand jury testimony. At Charlie's behest. Well, sure. Yeah. But Linda Kasabian, she'd only been there for a few weeks when all of this happened. And right after it did happen, she got the hell out of Dodge. Well. She ends up being the the witness that sends everybody else to prison for the rest of their lives. All right. But she's there that night. She's the only person who has a valid driver's license. So Charlie's got to have her in the car just in case they get pulled over by the police. Right? Is she actually driving everybody around? Or she she's was. Just in she's the car? driving this night. Okay, so she's just on, driving on everybody around. The late evening hours of Saturday, August the 9th, into the early morning hours of Sunday, August the tenth, they are driving around, looking to continue this haunting of the people of Los Angeles. Okay. They end up in a town in a in a section of Los Angeles called uh, Los Felix. It's close to Griffith Park. If you're somebody out there who knows your L.A. geography, congratulations. I don't have a clue what I'm talking about. It doesn't matter. But it's several miles away. Okay. Which is one reason why the cops don't think these two things are related for four months. Yeah. I mean, that, that makes sense. There were some drugs found at Cielo Drive. This is a quiet, middle-aged couple. 
another reason why you don't think these things are related. Mm. Oh, did I mention that they wrote pig on both in blood on both places? They discounted that for four months. Total coincidence. Okay. I, I but, would think that would be a big indicator. Ding, 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 ding. Right. It might be related. Yeah. So they end up this carload of people, seven Charles Manson and six of his followers. I mean, they and, are packed in a car. Yes. What are they in a van? Well, they were big cars back then. Okay. And they had taken out the back seat just of like this the car. Scooby Doo folks riding well, around. It's not exactly the mystery machine, but it's the Ugh. hate machine. It's the Manson machine. It's the Manson machine. That's much better. So they end up at 3301 Waverly Drive. Okay. And it turns out that Charles Manson has been to the house next door before to an acid party oh. a year prior. Okay. So he knows the neighborhood. Surprised he remembered how to get back there. <laughs> I know. But he did. And so they walk up the driveway. Charlie and Clem go into the house. And they tie up Lino LaBianca, age 44. He's a successful businessman in town. He owns a chain of grocery stores called Gateway Markets. His wife, Rosemary LaBianca, is 38 years old. She's in her second marriage. She owns a successful ladies' boutique down in the valley. She's actually, when they, uh, when everything gets probated out, she's worth more than he is. Not that that matters, but they're both very successful people. They have a nice house. They've just gotten back from a weekend trip to the lake. Okay. It's 2 o'clock in the morning. It's between 1 and 2 a.m. on Sunday morning. They haven't been home long. Lena was still sitting on the couch reading the newspaper. He just bought, he, they just stopped on the way home at a newsstand and bought the latest copy of the Los Angeles Examiner. And while he is sitting in the car talking to the man who runs the newsstand, obviously the big news of the day it's what happened the previous night at CLO yeah, Drive. The That's what they're talking about. Yeah, he's probably the randomness about of it. it, the ridiculousness of it. Is he reading about it in the newspaper? Is Not yet, yet, but he oh. will when he gets home. Oh, but but when they but enter that's the what home, they're talking about. When they enter the home, he's sitting there reading the newspaper. Yes, possibly. About they find the his murder. glasses and his newspaper sitting on the coffee table. Okay. The next morning. All right. So Charlie and Clem go in. And they're gone for about 10 minutes, Susan Atkins says, because she stays in the car that night. She does not go into 3301 Waverly Drive. But in about 10 minutes, Charlie comes back out and says, look, I told these people we're just going to rob them. They're tied up. Go in and do what you did last night, except make it even worse. Make it even worse. And hitchhike back to Spawn Ranch. I'm taking the car and I'm going home. Okay, so Charlie... You might be a little bit of a, I mean, what? Yeah. What, what is the word? Home? What is the word I'm looking, like, you you don't have the, the gumption or the guts to do it yourself? Well. You've gone in there, you've talked to the man, which you looked him in the face and you couldn't do it? Well, like, I, why? I think that it was just a power trip. I don't know. I mean, we'll, and maybe there's an interview out there somewhere where Charles explains exactly what his thought process was, but maybe not. I don't think understand it. Because but I don't, I don't, think, don't think he had to work very hard to get people to do these things for him. So why work, in, why work so hard for himself? No, he, he did not have to, to work very hard. And, and Charlie could explain it all day. And we're not going to understand it because I don't know, Charlie actually understood. Yeah. I mean, I think he did. He fully was convinced of his 
purpose and mission. Really, and, I do believe. And Charlie the power was, that he held over these, he loved these kids. That. He loved that. Yeah, you could see that in interviews. I've seen many, many interviews mm-hmm. with Charles Manson, and he will make sense. But I'm right always, up until the point when he doesn't. Make I'm sense. always fascinated by how he was able to brainwash so many people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because again, I've said this: thirty seconds. Is how long it took right. me to go, nope. Yeah. Yeah, we talked about that last week. But you know what? These these impressionable kids back in the 60s, they're, they're, they're hippies, they're flower children, they're running away from their parents and or from their lives anything. or whatever, and they've got nothing. They don't. And, and Charlie says, hey, come to the Spawn Ranch with me. Everybody's equal. Uh, it's free love, all the drugs you can use. We all feed each other. Yeah. You know, they did garbage runs and just went to the back of garbage, uh, to grocery stores and dug out the garbage. And but these people That's were how still, they fed each other. These people were still starving. Sure. So he had total control yeah. over these individuals, and I have to remember that. Yeah. It's just amazing to me that he was able to do that. I, yeah, it's... Anyways, I'm It's a different time. No, no, I'm, so, I'm glad so you did. So he says... I'm out of here. Hitchhike your way back. Who did he leave there? He left Tex Watson again because he knows he can count on Tex because Tex pretty much killed everybody at yeah. CLO Drive the night before. Yeah, he did. He left Patricia Cranewinkle there. She was one of the other girls who was there the night before. And she left a new girl. Uh, he left a new girl. Her name was Leslie Van Houten. Okay. She had heard the stories that they told at Spawn Ranch after they came back from Cielo Drive, and she thought, I want to get involved in this. Please take me. Oh, wow. She wanted to make Charlie happy. She wanted to make Charlie happy. Yeah. So he then he takes everybody else back. Yeah, and and there's a long story about what they do between the time that they drop them off at the LaBianca residence and end up back at Spawn Ranch. They stop in a couple of other places in an attempt to kill other people. But it doesn't work out. Everybody ends up and the car ends up back at Spawn Ranch. And so Tex and Patricia and Leslie Van Houten are the three people who go into Waverly Drive. Okay, and what happens there? So the LaBiancas are both tied up, their hands behind their back in the living room. Patricia and Leslie take Rosemary LaBianca back into the bedroom. Their, their master bedroom, I guess. At that point, Tex Watson begins to finish off Lino LaBianca. He's got his hands tied behind his back. He dies from 26 stab wounds. Uh, he ends up in the floor beside the couch, again, with the, the sports section and his reading glasses on the coffee table. When that begins, according to what Susan Atkins was told later by Leslie Van Houten, Rosemary LaBianca starts screaming, what are you doing to my husband? And Leslie Van Houten says later that those last words that that woman ever shouted out of her mouth would stay with her for infinity. It was just such a blood-curdling, what are you doing to my husband? Because she actually, Leslie has a conscience somewhere under there, has some remorse. Hold on to that thought. Okay. Because what they start to do when that happens is they're like, well, we better put an end to this right now because she's screaming and we don't want the neighbors to hear. So Rosemary ends up on the floor in the bedroom with a 
cord from a lamp wrapped around her neck on her back. I'm sorry, on her stomach with her back exposed. 41 stab wounds to her back, to her back, to her lower back and her buttocks and her thighs. And Leslie Van Houten says later that she had no part in the stabbing of Rosemary while she was alive, but in order to make sure that she was still in good standing with the family after they determined that she was dead, she climbed down onto the floor and stabbed her a few times. And do we believe that? Well, there were wounds that were post-mortem. According to the autopsy, there were several wounds in Rosemary LaBianca's body that were post-mortem wounds. And there's some way to tell the difference. Okay. Yeah, yeah, there is. Um, But, But okay, well. It lent some credence to her story. It doesn't matter. She was still. So it was Patricia doing all the stabbing. She's. According to her. She's done a lot of stabbing in the last uh, 40, 36 hours. Yeah. Abigail Folger and Rosemary LaBianca, she's done a lot of stabbing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so when that's over, the house is quiet again. The three of them go into the bathroom and take a shower. I'm not sure if it was all together or separately, but they washed some of the blood off of them. They went into the kitchen and ate some uh, watermelon that maybe had been brought back from the LaBianca's weekend vacation that they just returned from. Maybe there's a cooler sitting on the kitchen. I don't know. But they found watermelon rinds in the sink. Susan Atkins said later that they stole some chocolate milk from the refrigerator. So before they left, they took a shower and had a meal. Because they're starving. Yeah. Oh, and one other thing they did was they wrote uh, death to pigs on the living room wall in Lino LaBianca's blood. They wrote Rise, R-I-S-E, because that's one of the things you're supposed to arise and create helter-skelter and bring about the end of humanity and bring on this race war. And the third thing that they wrote on the refrigerator door, helter-skelter. And again, Lino LaBianca's blood. Hmm. They both had uh, pillowcases put over their heads post-mortem. And when they got Lino LaBianca's body to the morgue, not only did they find the word war carved into his stomach, they found a carving fork. I guess they found that before they got to the morgue. But there was a carving fork sticking out of Lino LaBianca's stomach that Susan Atkins said Patricia Krenwinkel did on purpose. She grabbed it and thought, hey, this will be fun, and stabbed him in the stomach and watched it wah, 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 oh my slowly gosh. stop vibrating. Ugh. And she just stared at it the entire time that it was doing. Yikes. Yeah. We can get into exactly how their bodies were found the next day. It was actually Rosemary's 15-year-old son who, who found oh, the no. bodies. He came home. Sunday night at 8.30 from the lake vacation that they had all been on. Mm-hmm. He was supposed to come home with them on Saturday night. Oh, my goodness. And talked mom into letting him stay and hang out with his friends for one more day at the lake. Oh, gosh. So they dropped him off at 8.30 Sunday night. And he walks in to just this. Well, he didn't walk in. He, okay. he walked up to the door, and he noticed that all the blinds in the house were drawn. That was strange. Oh, so that was. The that kitchen was- light was on at 8.30 at night. 
the the car with the speedboat that they'd used at the lake all weekend that the that Lino and Rosemary had driven back from the lake on Saturday was still sitting in the driveway and his stepdad never left that boat out overnight. So something was badly wrong. He, that this was very unnatural. Yeah. So the son walks down to the corner payphone, calls his older sister. Long story short, sister gets boyfriend, boyfriend and stepson go into the house. They see Lino. Mm. They call the cops. The cops show up. They find both bodies. And Bugliosi says in Helter Skelter that the next morning when that paper came out, everybody in Los Angeles was scared to death that they were next. And that lasted for four months until one of the newspapers broke the story about the grand jury uh, investigation and the Susan Atkins testimony. Mm -hmm. And then they all started to, then everybody took a different direction and felt like they knew what had happened or at least had some clues about what had happened. And then they, they find the revolver that's been thrown out of the car. They find the clothing. It all starts to come together. Uh, but what had to happen is, and we're winding this down now, Bugliosi had to figure out some way to describe this to a jury when he got it in front of a jury, and that happens in uh, the summer of 1970. It's July the 15th before the trial starts in 1970. So we're still months and months and months away from that actually happening. But he had to figure out some way to describe what we all know is the truth today, that the Manson family was shit nuts crazy. Mm. Charlie, most of all, and Helter Skelter was his motive. That was He was motive. trying to start this black on white race war. Mm-hmm. And Bugliosi had to figure out some way to explain that to a jury, and I cannot wait. Katie Gibbons to explain that shit next week because <laughs> I've read it twice and I still don't know how he did oh it. Oh my gosh, that is because it's going to be interesting to me to see how you tow that line with you don't want to make these individuals so insane that they say no, they shouldn't go to jail, they should be. Yeah, it, it, am I making there, sense? Yeah, there's a conversation that Bugliosi says that he has with one of his assistant, one of the other prosecutors on the case, and they're trying to figure out. And we talked about before how important it is to have a motive to bring to a jury to explain why something crazy happened. And they're having this conversation, and the other guy says, "Vince, you're never going to convince them that this is why this happened." And he said, "If you've got a better idea, I will drop this one in two seconds." And he didn't because there was none. There was none. That was because what it this was. was the motive. Yeah, it was the motive. Well, yeah. As crazy as truth, it sounded. I guess. Wow. Yeah. Anyway, so that's all I have today. Oh my gosh, Scott. That was fantastic. Oh, thanks. I'm so, I'm. I have to pee. Uh, okay. Oh, <laughs> Scott's got some paperwork to handle. Yeah. As, before we leave today. And Katie's going to take it next week. Oh, I can't yeah. wait. Ooh, yeah. I'm yeah. super excited. I am too. To, to listen to this. It's I be get great. to just sit here and hear the story. I've not done anything. Uh, you have really just kind of half-assed this for like I a really, month now. I really have. Yeah. Well, wait, wait for me <laughs> to return the favor for the next two or three weeks. <laughs> Thank you so much. That was awesome. So we're gonna do. Uh, we're gonna talk about our our our, our website. Yes, Visit thank our website, you. TrueCrimeOnEasyStreet.com. Yeah. Uh-huh. Follow us on Instagram. Follow us on Facebook. No shoutouts today. I don't have any shoutouts. Do you guys have no, any? Katie, Give us nothing. Some comments and reviews, and we'll get some shoutouts next week. You That's got right. it, guys. All right. Um, good night, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>